This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Beautiful Misery, The Hunger for the Afflicted Woman in Fiction. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's here. It's time. We're addressing the uh, the weeping elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lately there's been a significant rise in sad girl fiction. And if you don't know what that is, hang tight because we will get there. Now, normally, this might be a little bit outside the dragon's remit, um, since it's a style and subgenre that tends to attach itself far more to literary fiction. Um, However, many of the new breeds of sad girl books have incorporated speculative fiction elements. So, basically, uh, it has strayed into our back garden, so we feel vindicated in discussing it. And dissecting it <laughs> <laughs> yes um now small disclaimer before we really get cracking but uh we or at least i don't i mean madeline might have like read loads and loads yeah. that i don't yeah, know yeah i just haven't um, told you about my secret uh obsession basically we don't claim to have read exhaustively amongst this subgenre um for reasons that we'll explain uh, although we've tackled enough to make an informed stab at this episode i think um, however, we're not. We're also not slagging this off. Um, so, if you're a big fan of the subgenre and, and we've missed something, then let us know. Obviously, basically, whenever we say something and you happen to be better informed, then we'd rather hear about it. Yes. Okay. Uh, now, many of you might at this point going, okay, but what the what what the hell is sad girl fiction? What 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 is this? Where does it come Where from? Where does it come from? Well, we shall go back, 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 back into the mists of time to the origins of the sad girl. Uh, because, first of all, this is not entirely straightforward. Uh, because melancholy and patient suffering have been celebrated and even held up as aspirational states of being for an incredibly long time. You know, there isn't an exact location in history in which we can point and say, this is where it began. This is the big bang of sad girl books. (laughs) The big bang. (laughs) Um, Yeah, consider some of the following points and draw your own conclusions. And, you know, again, if you're better informed and you actually know when this started, then you know, put you put forward your theories where, where it was them. Yes. Um, but obviously there there was the understanding with the early Abrahamic religions, especially Christianity, um, placing a strong emphasis on the godliness of suffering patiently. So the idea that if you were afflicted with disease, injury, prejudice or persecution or living in a situation that was otherwise very undesirable, um, you know, the, the suffering patient Paul, for example, and you endured it mildly, you were, in fact, pious and holy. Yes. Um, This was then considered beautiful, at least in the abstract. Um, And you don't actually need to take our word for it. Um, If you go into any moderately old church in the UK and take a look at the 300-year-old or older stained glass windows depicting the lives of saints, you will see... (laughs) Horrors. 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 (laughs) Terrible horrors. 
Uh, there are parents who will not allow their children to read horror, who will happily take them into what amounts to ghoulish, to a ghoulish house depicting scenes of torture in full technicolor. Good figure. Um... <laughs> That was definitely a feature of my childhood. And, you know, whenever we went to a new church because we were visiting or we were singing with the choir, whatever, I'd always find my eyes drawn to the stained glass windows and you'd see the most horrific things happening to the figures in the windows. Yeah. It's like, who's that? Oh, that's St. Cecilia. She's just having her breasts lopped off. Yeah. And this is okay? Yeah. Why is this okay? And it's like, um, and it's okay because, as you can see, they just look sort of mildly forlorn about the whole situation. They're not screaming in agony. There aren't, you know, there's a little bit of blood, but you don't see huge floods of it. You don't see them writhing. They're just there like, well, this is an inconvenience. Um. <laughs> it really depends on who created the windows, because some of them were really into the whole, I want people to know they were in agony and they're holy because of it. And it's just, uh, anyway, there's an entire, there's an entire sort of sub-episode there, if we follow that rabbit. Yes. <laughs> Um, so we're going to leap forward, leapfrog forwards rather, several centuries, with just a passing nod to the blessed state of suffering you can see in later medieval chronicles. Um, so we'll hit the 17th century where beautiful melancholy starts creeping into prose and poetry. Yes. Now, honestly, this is especially poetry. You know, by the 18th and 19th century, a good portion of poetry holds two key ideas, that it is uh, beautiful to consider life from the perspective of one who cannot enjoy or take part in it, i.e. because they're dying on a self-destructive path or otherwise afflicted. And also that the motifs of suffering, affliction and melancholy melancholy which is like <laughs> melancholy but it involves more fish, uh, melancholy confer um, profoundity. Yeah. So, in short, if you don't feel miserable, then you cannot truly be intellectual. Yes. And, I and if that seems like a hot take, then I can absolutely provide you with a reading list. Yes. Um, and we should also say that this is not just in European literature either. You see examples no. of this across the world. I mean, um, if you look at the tale of Genji, for example, um, you know, in Japan and, and stuff like that, you, you see kind of this idea of... Um, beauty, you know, men's desirability, beauty being part of how desperate, how forlorn they were, how, um, you know, uh, piteous they were. There was an entire courtship ritual which was based all around this. So it is not just something that we find in Europe. No, absolutely not. Yeah. Okay, so what is sad girl fiction? Well... <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, while the beauty of melancholia eventually became the provenance of men and male writers, because being able to write and get published was largely dominated by men, one of the most enduring archetypes was the suffering woman. Yeah, let's see if this description seems familiar. She is young, beautiful, usually white, sensitive, virtuous, but she is also either deathly ill, recently dead, in a life situation that means all those good things will be stripped away from her and you know it's going to happen, actually injured, the wound or blood making a shocking contrast to her white skin, or mentally ill in some way. Yep, yeah, so many people. <laughs> <laughs> this is like totting up a mental list. Uh, um, basically, from Victorian heavyweights to modern writers, this afflicted woman is ubiquitous in fiction, and even up until today, in fact, especially up until today. Yes. 
Um, now, in recent times, more negative. Blah, 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 blah. I can't speak today, Jules. Um, I really can't speak today. <laughs> more negative traits are also being added. So we tend to see self-destructive behavior, alcoholism, but the, and I say in inverted commas, the tidy kind of alcoholism, which you only see in fiction, um, selfishness, uh, neediness, etc., yeah. In short, this is basically a celebration of vulnerability that puts pain on display as a way of claiming intellectual prowess. Yeah. But the problem is that it equates women with fragility, which has also sort of unfortunate connotations and feeds subtly and overtly into a background refrain of inferiority, which we're still trying to move the needle on from. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we'll 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 circle back to this because let let's you you're probably after hearing that little laundry list thinking who actually reads this stuff unless you're someone who reads this stuff in which case you'll know exactly why yeah but let's assume that you're not so <laughs> um, now that it probably does sound really damning but the fact is that different people need different books at different points in their lives um, and there there's a time for sad girl fiction uh, most bookish women go through a phrase of devouring sad girl literature at some point. Uh, for many of us, it is in our late teens and early 20s, and it has a lot to do with the process of self-definition. Yeah, I can honestly say that I think it was from 16, um, sort of 16 to maybe 23, although I think I was moving out of it by then. And it wasn't certainly wasn't the only thing I read, because I read um, classics and science fiction and fantasy and horror and stuff as well mm. but I did have a bit of a yen for sad girl fic in between to the point where it was like oh you know the drama of it all and you know really immersing yourself in in the pain of existence kind of thing and then when I've gone back and looked at some of those books that I read now I'm a bit disgusted by the characters and a bit you know what the hell did I see in this? Yeah. So it was it was clearly um, something that was necessary at the time. It fed some sort of need yeah. for me personally, but I'm, I'm kind of glad I'm not really there anymore. So when I enjoy sad girl fiction now, and I do still, yeah. um, it's mostly from the perspective of looking at it um, as an outsider rather than somebody who is inside the story, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, basically, the point with sad girl fiction is to really feel. It's to deliberately engage with content that makes you struggle with the emotional weight of it all. Um, for some people, it's a way for them to embrace the idea that they can be taken seriously. You know, pain equals intelligence in sad girl terms. Yeah. Um, for others, it's a type of catharsis. They've been unable to engage with the world via joy, for whatever reason, and therefore sadness makes the fiction feel real, attainable, and believable for them. Yeah. A little bit like Shakespeare, you know, sad girl literature is about feeling everything all at once and then piling a little bit more on top. But yeah. unlike with Shakespeare, it disdains the lighter emotional states. Yeah, definitely. And I think we also have to consider the idea that girls get spoon-fed the idea that we really have to feel everything all the time. Um, that if it doesn't consume us, we're somehow doing it wrong. I mean, particularly when when it's your first foray into romance or something, um, not romantic fiction, but actual 
you know, finding a romantic partner. Yeah. Um, you know, throw yourself in. This should be everything. This should be the one without looking at the idea that maybe there isn't a, the one. Mm-hmm. And that that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It just, I mean, even also the idea of the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, the more I think about it, the more it troubles me. But I certainly remember... I wouldn't say so much that I bought into it, but just sort of feeling a bit broken because I didn't really agree with it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, paradoxically, though, um, sad girl fiction also eulogizes the broken. You know, um, it's beautiful because she is damaged. Her flaw is either the harm done to her or the harm she's doing to herself. Um, We are present to witness the fragile moments before it all ends in tragedy you know we are also ophelia pausing on the lake shore before stepping into the water and i think for some people it's the catharsis of that comes very much from basically seeing someone who's experiencing what you're going through plus some and watching them complete the path in a way that it ends with everyone understanding that it was a tragedy and for some ways that actually helps i think that has helped a lot of people look you know actually come to terms with what's happening to them to feel justified and feeling sad to feel vindicated for their emotions to feel that they are allowed to you know, be going through all of this trouble. And also... There is a validation in it, isn't there? There is. There's absolutely validation. But it also gives them a chance to, in some ways, experience all of these very unhealthy coping mechanisms to go through that, to, to see the tragic end without actually having to do harm onto themselves. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to be honest, if you're set, if you're sat there or standing or driving or whatever, and you're listening to us and you're thinking, yeah, but the way you've just put that kind of makes it sound like it's sick. Well, yes, actually, I guess it can be. But I mean, it does serve a purpose, as, as Madeline's just said. And there's nothing wrong with you if you do enjoy that sort of fiction, because, you know, as I was mentioning myself, maybe that's what you need right now. Yeah. Um, my main argument I suppose, is that equating pain with the profound suggests that equal um, enlightenment cannot be found through joy as well, which, you know, as you get older, hopefully you'll find as patently untrue as I've done. Yes. You know, I, I think we can all agree that everyone will, well, everyone will have a painful experience and a lot of people will end up learning from that painful experience. Now, the lessons they learn might not actually be good ones. But we we do learn from experiences. Um, yeah. And there is wisdom that comes with that. But again, there's a difference between wisdom and kind of profundity. Um, yeah. And the concentration of excellence, intelligence, etc. being, um, you know... A direct result of or rather being necessary in order to um to achieve that state you have to have pain in order to achieve that state isn't a great way of looking at it saying pain is a part of life and can basically enhance who you become is 
I think, a better way of looking at it. Um, but the concentration of pain only, and which we've been doing for a very, very long time, is not great. And it's not something... And, and when you have teenagers who are at the most delicate point, you know, one of the most delicate points in their development, um, and you're basically telling them that the only way to be excellent, to be special, to be worthy, to be etc. is to be, to suffer, that isn't great. No, it's kind of this sense of disaffected ennui whereby maybe you get to your teens and for whatever reason your life experiences have led you to know absolutely that the saccharine fairy tales peddled and, you know, shall we say cleansed slightly before they got to you aren't true there isn't going to be something that's going to automatically slot into place where you're you're going to be where you belong with who you belong or whatever and so you take a more cynical approach to life and i think that's why sad girl fiction can have such appeal for you at that stage um conversely it's also probably the very thing that you you maybe should moderate with lots of other stuff as well at that time and not just immerse yourself in. Yeah. I mean, this is going to sound like it's uh, not relevant, but it is. Um, obviously, both me and my brother um, work at universities. And one of the things that we kind of noticed was the way that particularly um, young sort of pre-university uh, students, so sort of A-level students, um, come in for experience days. They come in to see the university, to have a look around on open days and stuff like that. And they don't want to show enthusiasm. They don't yeah. want to show excitement. They don't want to show these kinds of things. They don't want to be seen to be enjoying themselves or to smile or things like that. Because there is this weird kind of sense of we equate happiness joy excitement with a level of stupidity we mock it and i think that is something that sort of really happens because i remember the same thing happening i look back at my teenage self and i think you are being weight you're trying to sort of be very serious you're trying to be all that and and you've equated that to all the bad things or all the suffering or all the the horrible things that you were going through at the same time and you've turned around and become snide and cruel because you are not actually basically allowing the idea that oh actually you know it doesn't all need to be mozart and shakespeare and stuff like that people are allowed to just enjoy what brings them joy etc yeah. um so i do think there's a, a sort of a natural state anyway that comes along with being a teenager but i do think that a lot of it is also perpetuated by the media and the stuff that we're seeing at the time, which is this glorification of the idea of suffering as a beautiful state. Yes, definitely. Um, which is a good point to look at the sad girl in art. Yes. So the afflicted woman uh, appears in various forms of art. Um, poetry, as we've said, um, some with somewhat creepy undertones, uh, Robert Browning, <clears throat> Evelyn's Hope. Uh, anyway, um, but also in paintings of all genres, animes, films, you name it, you will find the sad girl. She's not even hiding. I was going to say she's hiding among them. She's, she's, she's not even she's hiding. She's just there. <laughs> yeah, Robert Browning, I like the poem, but it starts, beautiful Evelyn Hope is dead. And then 
the poet invites you to sit by her bedside at an hour and look at her corpse, which, you know, would be a bit sort of like, uh, maybe that would be kind of the thing for the Victorian era, um, because they did kind of, <laughs> they did some very macabre stuff, stuff we would find very macabre. Um, but what's really quite creepy about that poem is that he then goes on to say that she and I were born at the wrong times, I too old and she born too late. And then you realise how young this girl is. She's like just barely 16 and he's someone in his 40s and had hoped to marry her. And it's like, okay, and you're now finding her extra beautiful because she's died young. And there are the flowers she picked yesterday in the vase by her, her dead body. It, and it's the whole Ophelia thing again. <laughs> and it's like, yes, I like the poem and I get the sense of melancholy and there is something very beautiful about it. But at the same time, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and that's the thing is like, it's not a, it's so sad that she died so young and didn't get a chance to live into her, her adulthood, you know, but the glorif, the weird, yeah. <laughs> It's like you will forever be unspoiled, it's like, or you know, on the edge of being spoiled. It's that that teetering edge again. Um, it's it. The whole thing is like the trope that crept into fashion in disturbing ways too. Um, consider, I, you have to go and look these up. I had to look these up because I wasn't born in the sixties. Um, but there's the English model Twiggy, who was, you know, very, very known as Twiggy because she was very sort of waifish. She was the start of the waifish model. So you think Kate Moss Twiggy started it. Yeah. Um, and she started her career modelling as a teenager in the 60s. And if you look back at some of those early photo shoots when she's about 15, 16, she's displayed with smeared eye makeup as if she's been crying and in dishevelled clothing. And it deliberately evokes this image of a young girl who's maybe been walking home and has been assaulted. And she's spoken about this herself and said, yeah, looking back, that's pretty sick. Yeah. It's that's a bit odd, but it, again, it's the you know a vulnerable young girl has come to harm, and this is yeah. a beautiful image. This yeah, on, or has, on the cusp of being spoiled. Yeah, or has you know appeared in the rain, desperate for help, has run, has you know, but has had to come for help, basically. Yeah. Um. There's even more. Fashion is infamous for this stuff. So there's the 1995 Alexander McQueen um, showing where he took the aesthetic of suffering and wrought it to a fever pitch with his infamous Highland Rape Runway. So he had bloodied models strutting down the catwalk in ripped tartans and torn lace dresses. He then followed it up the, far the, the next year with his Widows of Culloden show, which depicted the models in funereal shrouds. And when interviewed about the whole thing, um, because it did cause a bit of outrage, um, McQueen literally just said, I find beauty in melancholy. And it's like, yes, but you also seem to find beauty in very specific female suffering or implied female suffering, which is is where I start to draw the line. Because I think if you if you kind of link those two things inextricably in people's minds, it becomes problematic. Yeah, particularly because you never see... It's not. It's very rarely shown with men. Yeah, that particular kind of suffering. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we. Yeah, it, it was also there's, Sylvia Path, wasn't it? Um, it 
in the Spanish version of Glamour magazine, a fashion spread was inspired by Sylvia Plath. Yes. And yes, they used a gas oven as a prop. Yes, I remember that. And then if you... Uh, there's even worse, back in 2013, the, the sort of suicide chic thing was adopted for a fashion shoot that had the models dressed up as famous women who had committed suicide, which included Virginia Woolf, Sam Mao, and Sylvia Plath. Again, kneeling by a plastic oven. Yeah. So at this point, if you're having a what-the-fuck moment, we get it. (laughs) Art is supposed to shock, it's supposed to challenge, and supposed to make us think, but it's also supposed to engage with the positive, not just celebrate mental mental ill health, essentially. Yeah. I, I can kind of see, if I'm being really, really objective, I can kind of see why someone might have gone in those directions with those fashion shoes because they are going for the shock factor. And also there is, you know, you can technically you can find art in anything. and But at the same time, there is a part of me that's like, that's a step too far. We're celebrating people who had felt for whatever reason they had to escape life yeah and the thing is we're not just celebrating we're not celebrating their life we seem to be celebrating their death you know as if that was a beautiful thing instead of a very tragic thing and it all just feeds into the ophelia thing again where you know young and beautiful she lies in her grave kind of thing yeah that's which is not good no in my opinion Anyway, let's look at some of the pros and cons of sad girl fiction, because there are pros as well as cons. Yes. So the pros. um, The romantic poets, I I mean, I don't think they were entirely wrong. Um, There is beauty in melancholy, and a lot of sad girl fiction is actually very beautifully written. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, I find the melancholy of you know, the lower key, more muted nature poets, really quite beautiful. Yeah. So talking about, you know, Keats, Ode to a Nightingale. Yeah. And a lot of that is him meditating on the fact that he's going to die pretty soon. <laughs> but it's still a very beautiful poem. And he has, he is not literally holding up a woman in that one um, and as a, like, a favourite victim, whereas you can't say the same about La Belle Dame Saint uh, where is it once again someone who's already died? <laughs> Death has come for you in the shape of a beautiful woman. Yes. <laughs> so, I um, mean, yeah, and again, I like that Robert Browning poem. I find it incredibly gross, but I like it just the same. Yeah. Uh, there's also the catharsis issue, as we've, we've touched upon. You know, feeling everything and really embracing misery temporarily can allow you to reject it and reach for a more balanced state. Yeah. Like we said, it allows you to kind of go through all the dark emotions, the dark desires, you know, and when I talk about dark desires, you know, that includes things like self-harm, that includes things like really sort of falling down into the self-pity to the to the extent that you, you cannot, you can no longer function, that you cannot move past something, that you cannot heal, etc. Exploring the idea of not being able to do those things and doing it safely so that actually you can go through all of that and then come out of it the other end, essentially. Yeah. Which is, I think, very important. Um, you also get character exploration. You know, there's been a lot of interesting examination of the range of female characterization when this subgenre steps beyond merely portraying the beauty of suffering 
and our favourite victim, the afflicted woman. Yeah, definitely. Um, And, you know, it's not necessarily just in sad girl fiction either, but there's things where you now get thrillers and things where women are, you know, psychopaths and serial killers and things. And I'm not saying that's necessarily an aspirational state, but it's interesting that, um, you know, roles which were traditionally given to men in literature are now um, kind of being opened up a little bit more. And I think there is something quite liberating about being able to explore someone's negative traits. Um, I read a book recently called The Things We Do to Our Friends, and it sort of takes you in a bit of a spiral. This girl has gone off to university under a new identity, and then you kind of discover, spoiler alert, guys, um, that she was instrumental in an incident that happened in France where she and three other girls basically abducted an adult man and um, ended up killing him. They decided to punish him, inverted commas, and it kind of started out as a game. And then this this lead girl sort of kind of got the blood frontier, I guess, because there was some part of her that's... She sort of acknowledges that she is a psychopath and that there is some part of her that doesn't want the game to stop. And then she gets caught up in a ring of something similar that becomes a competition between her and another girl at university. So you can imagine how things all go very tits up from that point. It's an, it's an interesting book. I wouldn't necessarily say it was the greatest read ever, but it was very interesting to see a female character um, explored and portrayed in that very negative way, mm. unflinchingly, um, without at any point saying, yeah, this is great, and doing sort of like the Dexter thing where serial killers are cool. Yeah, and it, it kind of also makes me think of, um, you know, like Jessica Jones, for example. Yeah. You know, she's absolutely suffering, but they haven't sanitized it, I don't think. Um, and it, no, it doesn't look attractive when she crashes into her messy apartment, absolutely shit-faced. No, um, it doesn't, uh, you know, and she's not an attractive person either. She's cruel, she's mean, she's not particularly nice, you know. Um, though of course the actress is obviously quite an attractive person but the the way that she is portraying the character isn't, you know, particularly attractive Um, and I think the other thing is that it has also opened up the doors to talk about real female experiences and to actually you know make people see the visceral nature of it and the long-lasting consequences of it, and and yes, that's kind of there is the sort of this idea of the of the suffering and the inevitability of it, um, but also it, I think for some people it's actually brought everyday experiences to light, so that so that other viewers can turn around and say, oh, this isn't just something that we should kind of accept as oh that's every day this is actually causing real suffering and we can see it causing real suffering you know yeah yeah um it's like the the whole thing where sad girl fiction does tackle more muted less more muted feelings less enviable states of being so as you were saying you know where it brings things to light it's also a case of saying let's just take a moment and feel okay about not really being okay and being a bit of a mess and feeling directionless or just not being part of the career marriage family crowd and having your entire life mapped out in front of you. Yeah. Because I think 
we're kind of fed this thing where you're female and you must present yourself in a certain way. You mustn't, you know, you mustn't show that you are, <laughs> you are a bit of a mess. Or if you are a mess, you must be a mess in a charming way, like, you know, manic pixie dream girl kind of thing. Yeah. You can't actually be a literal mess where you make lots of mistakes. <laughs> yeah. And get things wrong. I think. Um, and sorry, <laughs> the manic pixie dream girl. Just someone just summarised it perfectly. It's like a. I'm sorry, that's not your manic pixie dream girl. Um, that's a, a girl with a, a traumatised girl with ADHD who needs to go to therapy. And I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it, I think it really does. You're absolutely right. It does highlight that. So, I mean, it's not... I think in some ways that's probably why I was drawn to it in the sense of it was... There was far less of it. And it, I think a lot of it was far less cynically written as in it was written just to to make a point about something rather than to actually explore things. Um, but I think initially I was drawn to it because it was like, I don't have my life mapped out. I I literally cannot see me settling down with one person for my entire life because they'd be there all the time. Mm. But I'm supposed to want this. Why am I supposed to want this? And I don't actually know where everything is going. I just know that I've got all these thoughts and things and nobody wants to hear any of them because they're not tidy. Yeah. So I kind of I kind of get that and I understand looking back from that perspective why I was drawn to it. Um, it, it also does critique and satirise the women's popular fiction genre, which isn't a bad thing, um, as long as it's not done in a way that sort of demeans people who enjoy women's popular fiction, because there's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah, absolutely. We all, we all find escape our own ways. And that's okay. <laughs> it's sort of like, yes, you can. It's kind of, the, you know that, that saying, the poet needs the pain, as in you can't write without it. It's like... It's not true. You can write in a state of being content. You can write in a state of being joyful. You don't necessarily have to... I think there was this thing where you had to go out and get really drunk and become a complete mess before you could write anything of, of real note, anything of real meaning. Yeah. Um, and that's that's not true. And it, it bothers me to see that still like seeping into art, like, you know... Yeah. Bad water. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's a bit of a, it's kind of an odd sort of symbiotic relationship whereby you see it being perpetuated also by us putting value on works which concentrate on misery and the profoundity of pain. Yeah. And so we create this, you know, we say, well, in order for a story to be good, in order for a story to be, to have merit, it has to be about nasty people going through nasty things and everything sad at the end we're not allowed to have anything which is filled with joy you know and yeah. you and again what are the what are the texts you are studying as a teenager in english class you know what are those texts those are all those everything is terrible all of the time <laughs> texts yeah it's like, I get why, I'm not saying it's sad girl fiction, it's not really, um, but Romeo and Juliet is like the number one Shakespeare play that GCSE students will will do over here. Yeah. And it's just, you could have picked a comedy, you know? Yeah, it's... It, <laughs> they would have understood a comedy. Yeah, that's the thing is, it's, it's going it's to be, 
Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, um, and then sometimes it's The Tempest as well. And I'm like, he wrote a lot of comedies, guys. We can look at some of the comedies. <laughs> yeah, so again, going on from what you were saying, it's the deliberate rejection of contentment as a state which is not productive to creating art. Yeah. Again, so I think that's what I was trying to say, but it's not It's not great. Um, my, my One of my number one things that really bugs me is the sort of masturbatory preoccupation with misery i i am more real than you because i suffer so the whole sense that i have trials and tribulations that you could not fathom because i am the only person suffering so there's that that bugs me and there's also the people standing outside sort of you you can kind of see like robert browning with his hand shoved in his trouser pockets doing you know (laughs) yeah as he's um, as he's writing about evelyn hope and it's it's that that kind of like well it's beautiful and there's a yeah it's not it's not great no yeah um it is it's 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 the complete self-indulgence it's a complete self-indulgence of 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 all of it you know there's both the the external factor and then the internal factor as well where it becomes this self-indulgence and uh, the selfishness you know that that it embraces ignoring the fact that everyone else is suffering in ways that you cannot fathom too yeah and that that is the big thing isn't it is the fact that Yes, you may well be suffering in ways that other people can't understand because they would literally have to be you to understand them. But so is everyone else. You're not actually special in that respect. Yeah. <laughs> and weirdly, if you start looking at other people and trying to apply some kindness and some understanding, it gives you a perspective on your own problems that um, it won't eradicate your own problems, but it, it can give them a sense of proportion that you won't get if you're continually just concentrating all your efforts and all your love and understanding inwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that with regards to the masturbatory uh, preoccupation that you were talking about earlier, which is a, yeah. a great phrase, um, <laughs> the sort of the disturbing eroticization of the of the abused or mistreated female characters in particular. Yeah, it's a bit like, you know, I don't think it happens quite so much now because it's been pointed out a lot, but before when you used to get men who wrote scenes where women were raped or abused or whatever on page, and instead of making it, you know, downright just nasty, Mm. there was always a kind of sort of male gaze element to it, as in it's a bit like how Game of Thrones filmed some of those sort of scenes where clearly we were supposed to be a bit titillated at the same time. Yeah. And it feels like that to me. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, And one of the big ones is the implication that women are valid because of their pain and their willingness to display their wounds, especially female writers, um, rather than because they genuinely have something profound or intelligent to add. So it's kind of like, you're worth listening to because I'm entertained by your pain, rather than you're worth listening to because you're worth listening to. Yeah, which is not good. And is something it, that I think is 
is perpetuated and we see it in schools from a young age, which is very, very dangerous. Yeah. It's it's not that you don't find it with male writers. It's just it's not. I think because the perceived idea is that women will always start off from a position of vulnerability. Yeah. Ergo, um, any attention or help or whatever that is, is given to, you know, a, a sad girl type story. Um, is from the perspective of someone who is condescending rather than someone who is reaching out to an equal. Yeah. Whereas if you get a man writing about that, I mean, there's countless stories with, with men sort of like, oh, you know, I couldn't write, I had writer's block, I had a drinking problem, my girlfriend left me because I was such a fuck up, etc. But they don't have that same underlying fragility to them. Yeah. We We don't necessarily enjoy watching men completely come apart at the seams in the same way we enjoy it for women particularly if the women are young and hot yeah and i I feel like i'd love to do an episode which is all about the sad boy trope because don't get us wrong there is definitely this kind of the, the the sad boy trope is alive and real and has many many problems onto itself so don't don't think that we're we're completely ignoring it it is just a little bit different from the sad girl trope and that is again because of the inherent way in which we sort of still create this binary between genders yeah yeah definitely um okay so let's look at some examples both good and less good yes um i'm gonna start off with what i think is a very good one Um, i'm sure that jules will agree um it's fleabag yeah fleabag is brilliant um it's very very well written for a start yeah and you know, the other name for this trope is the messy woman trope, and she is the quintessential messy woman. And obviously, it's semi autobiographical, so it's very much. Um, I can't remember the act- actress's name now, but it's, you know, it's written and acted by her, and she was quite honest talking about it and saying, Yeah, for a while I had this preoccupation with sex and my value being to do with sex, kind of thing. Yeah. And the main character is, is just a mess. And. I think the first two episodes are deliberately filmed in a way that's quite choppy and abrasive and a bit off-putting deliberately so that you don't go in thinking, yeah, this is something where it's going to be a funny, entertaining Bridget Jones-esque style romp. It's yeah. not. This is this is somebody who is at rock bottom. Yes. Um, I, I think, again, one of the big things about Fleabag that really helps to sort of almost make fun of the sad girl sort of story but at the same time totally accentuate it is the fact is the breaking of the fourth wall which you wouldn't think would be kind of that much but it actually really is it creates this sense of camaraderie between um the character and the audience like they're sharing something and at the same time it highlights the fact that she's looking at us as if yeah, this is relatable. This is, you know, we're in the same path. And as we continue to watch everything fall apart for her, um, that connection suddenly becomes desperate, if that makes sense. In that, yeah, yes, it's... there's an element of comedy there, but also the fact that she's she's looking at us like, yeah, well, we're all on this journey together. And we're thinking, we're watching your journey, but you are on this alone. <laughs> you know. And I think it's like oh, we might be the we might be the lifeline that you're clinging to. And we're sat here going, No, don't do that. That's a fucking stupid thing to do. 
And at the same time, you're basically looking at us and going, you know, I'm going to do it. And I know it's a stupid thing to do as well, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. And it's the fact that I think for me, it's the moment that you have the priest um, who turns around and, and he's like, you keep looking, who are you looking at? Who are you, you know, he breaks the fourth yeah. wall as well by recognizing the fact that she's breaking the fourth wall. And, you know, on one level you think, ah, oh, that's just, it's funny. Um, but also it kind of brings up this idea that she is almost basically creating a bomb by saying, well, this is just, everyone is going through it. You know, yeah. that we're all in this together. And he shatters that illusion by basically saying, who are you, you know, who are you looking at? Where do you go when you do this? Um, yeah. And we get this sense that she's doing that in her head. She's in her head. She's thinking, yes, I'm here with everybody else. We're all on the same thing. And she's not. And it creates this isolating feel whilst also being very funny. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Penny Dreadful. Penny Dreadful is obviously not sad girl fiction however it really does feature a quintessential sad girl main character yeah um who is quite compelling but i have to say that it's voyeuristic it's not necessarily um something that's aspirational because you've got vanessa ives yeah and what she tends to she doesn't really ever get a break or when she does get a little break it, you know it's because the this the program is going to drop you it's going to send you on a long drop um in the next scene. Yeah. And it's they even mention at one point where Vanessa's Vanessa actually seeks help from a priest. And the priest said, Well you could do this, but then I don't think you will because you'll be less special. And she's like, Well why would anyone want this? And he says, I think you know that because it makes you chosen the beauty of suffering. So they're actually sort of being very self reflective and saying yeah, there are people who get locked into this mentality for the purpose of self-elevation, even though it's incredibly damaging. Yeah. So it's both, it's clever, but it's also quite disturbing, and it fits with the whole sort of penny dread, li literal penny dreadful gothic aesthetic, I think. Yeah, in, in the, <laughs> the gothic is very, very, very <laughs> guilty of the sad girl trope. Um, so you know like you really couldn't have something gothic without acknowledging that even if you didn't want to use it yourself I don't think yeah definitely um, I read a book a couple of months ago called Woman Eating by Claire Coda the main character of the book is a young vampire mm -hmm. who has just parked her mother who was the vampire who changed her in an old people's home her mother has imposed a stringent regime of only drinking pig's blood on this main character. I can't remember her name, unfortunately, um, ever since she was young. And, you know, her mother, I, it doesn't really go do the whole fancy horror thing where it explains the biology or whatever. It's just a case of this woman was a vampire. She was made centuries ago. Uh, she happened to get pregnant, even though she was a vampire. She gave birth and then immediately changed the baby. And then once this girl reached about sort of 19 sort of 17 19 she stopped aging right to the point where you're even thinking well you've got one person who clearly has early onset alzheimer's and is in a, a, a home because of it yeah and a girl who could have been sort of the product of this this delusional sort of overbearing parent is it actually real yeah until you get to sort of like three quarters of the way through the book and she goes on a bit of a killing spree 
she finally allows herself to eat and it's kind of a memoir about starving yourself of lots of different things it's good but it's also one of those ones where you're sat there going for god's sake get over yourself <laughs> so i think it might be it is absolutely quintessential sad girl i'm not going to say it's it's good or bad i think whether it's good or bad depends on where you are in your life and what you need yeah. it was interesting okay I don't think it's for me, but... <laughs> no, I mean, I, you would get very impatient with the style, I think, and then you'd get really impatient with the main character. Yes, probably. I was impatient with the main character. <laughs> uh, there is, of course, um, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. Yeah, I almost feel bad including this because she didn't set out to write a sad girl fiction. This is actually um, autobiographical. And it never really, it sort of looks at her journey um, through mental health problems when she's young. And the fact that we know she never really completely got over them. And the reason it's called the bell jar is that when the depression descends on her, she said it feels like her senses have been cut off from the world. Like she's been imprisoned under this this bell jar and the air is growing stale in there with her. Mm. And she's sort of, the book ends with her coming out on the other side of this bout of depression but you're left with the sense that she has this lingering fear that she never knows when the bell jar is going to descend on her again yeah um it's incredibly well written as you'd expect from sylvia plath um and we know that again she never really got over it she attempted suicide several times in her life and her final attempt was successful yeah it's incredibly sad and I, I almost don't want it put on lists, but this book has actually inspired people to literally write sad girl fiction. Yeah. It's almost like failing to see the point. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, a sort of quasi-horror book I read. It's weird how much sad girl fiction is sort of like borderline horror. Um, Our Wives Under the Sea by Julie Armfield. I liked it. It was... Is slightly odd, but not as odd as the next one I'm going to talk about. Um, basically, it's a lesbian couple and everything was fine. And then one member um, gets called to go on this. Basically, it's a mission on a submarine. And they lose contact with the submarine. And then they think that she's gone and she comes back. And she goes back, obviously, to her partner. And her partner wants everything to go back to the way it was before except that the woman who was under the water has changed mm. and bits of her are, are physically changing as well. There's some body horror and stuff in there as well. And it, it's almost, it's, it, it's told from alternating viewpoints and it's kind of like a twist on the whole Selkie myth idea where, you know, one of them's always going to have to go back to the sea because they don't belong on the land. Um, but there's a Lovecraftian element to it as well. <laughs> It, it's very, very well done. It's really good. Um, I would say it's only really borderline sad fiction just because it, it is talking about a relationship breaking up. Yeah. And the fact that it's not really anybody's fault in the same way that, you know, many relationships break up because two people just end up on different trajectories. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously a very obvious one is if someone needs to go back to the sea, that's kind of a different trajectory if you have to breathe air, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of an issue there. So um, yeah, it, it is very good. If you like a little bit, little bit sort of like creepy horror, maybe 
and you want the sort of sad girl sort of wistfulness, then that's a good one. Okay. Um, Bunny by Mona Awad is technically dark academia. <laughs> However, the main character is very much a sad girl. Yeah. I mean, I think dark academia and sad girl do tend to go... And sad boy uh, in a different way. Sad boy, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, I think because dark academia kind of leans into sort of the emo and, and, you know, goth trope and gothic tropes as well. Yeah. Um, And all of that literature and the romantic literature, so... (laughs) Anyway, the main character is at university, another prime time for sad girl type stuff. Yeah. And... She's sort of watching the people in, I believe it's her art class, um, they're all these popular, tanned, beautiful girls who are always sort of like, oh, I love your dress, I love your hair, and they all call each other bunny all the time, like almost interchangeably, they're all bunny, and she feels very on the outside of it until for some reason she gets included and she becomes one of the bunnies, and it turns out that there's some weird sort of sorority type stuff they're doing where they're messing with magic and there's sort of like this weird sort of magical realism sort of changing people into animals and and killing them kind of thing going on and i have to say it's really compelling but i got to the end of the book and i thought what the fuck did i just read (laughs) and i'm thinking about it now and i'm like i'm still not entirely sure what that story is about (laughs) But it is absolutely a sad girl. Uh, it's almost like the book and the plot itself is a reflection of being dislocated and lost in your own life. Mm. And just incoherent with it all as well. <laughs> oh. If you want to be really confused, read Bunny. It's it's, it's great. Yeah, I, I really don't think it's the right. I mean, I like I love the concept, but like I'm, I I can sense already that that is one of the type of books that would just do your head. It in. would fly over me. I I just wouldn't know what the hell. Well, I mean, to be honest, it's a rare book where I'm like, I'm still not sure I know what that was about. <laughs> I'm like, do I read it again? Do I have time to read it again? Would I still not know what it's about? Probably. It's kind of like a big extended metaphor, I think. Mm. Um, the film Black Swan, yeah. which featured Natalie Portman and uh, Mila Kunis, is absolutely sad girl. I think, and that's an aspect of the whole sad girl fiction that we haven't really touched on, is that this incredible pressure and drive that those characters put on themselves to succeed and be perceived as perfect even as they're coming apart yes yeah i i feel like it's it's an interesting one because i mean sad girl fiction tends to uh, has a lot of it it centers off it can center around relationships but very different types of relationships and one of the ones that you see a lot of in sad girl fiction is relationships between mother and daughter yeah um and but then but there's mother and daughter there's uh love interest and there's rival and black swan kind of does all three really but at the center of it all is the um uh the fight that one has with with oneself and black swan has some good parts and some bad parts i think but it was an interesting example. It's an interesting example of the sad girl story 
that is really about trying to live with yourself. Yeah, um, yeah. And particularly when you don't actually know who you are, because everyone around you is trying to tell you who you are, and you've been controlled and pushed, and you haven't had a chance to actually explore yourself. Um, you're being forced to do things instead of actually being able to engage with them in a, in a healthy way. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the backs, the backdrop of, you know, the ballet scene with... It's not that ballet itself is wrong. It really isn't. And it can be approached in a healthy way and many, you know, ballet dancers do approach it from a healthy way. But it also does attract people who have that drive and that compulsive personality. And um, it can be quite difficult for someone who has that and, you know, falls under the sort of slightly nervous, slightly perfectionist um, sort of personality type to um, to moderate themselves. Yeah. So it made a great backdrop for that story. Yeah. It, it also, it's one of those ones where we do see a lot of examples of um and it's and it's not just with ballet but it tends to be with a lot of sort of things like that so you can see it sometimes with horse riding but you really see it with ballet of very pushy parents yeah um yeah pushing children in and trying to live vicariously through them it's the same with acting um as well yes yeah definitely um, weirdly, a book that kind of gets put on sad girl fiction lists that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of as one and then realised that actually it kind of is, but it wasn't set out to be one. Mm. And that's Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. And it's, um, I don't know if you've ever read it, mm. but it basically the main character marries uh, <laughs> Dr. Bovary because she's looking for a comfortable place in life. She marries someone that she knows she does not love. Yeah. And that she doesn't really have anything in common with. And he kind of adores her, and she's got him wrapped around her little finger. And the whole time she's just in this state of constant discontentment. And if you just imagine these, like, like the discontentment and the mistakes stacking up like bricks, and you know there's going to be an inevitable fall that entire book is very sort of anxiety-inducing in that way. Yeah. Um, just because she's discontented, so she tries to distract herself by living a life that they absolutely cannot pay for. She's running up debts in his name without him knowing about it. Um, she's also having an affair, which he obviously doesn't know about. She pushes him into trying experimental med medical procedures on people, which fail spectacularly in ways that lead him open to legal charges and every time the stack of problems is getting higher and higher and all she's doing ultimately is seeking her own happiness um, and I think it does say some intelligent stuff about women's dissatisfaction with marriage at the time and the fact that it is actually cruel to force women to make marriage a career which it was Yeah. but at the same time it's like everything she does I, I ended up just feeling really sorry for her husband because yeah because he was going to bear the brunt of it because he was responsible for her yeah i think tess of the d'urbervilles we haven't mentioned tess of the d'urbervilles um yeah actually i meant to put that on the list and 
I would. And she's very much the traditional afflicted woman in the sense of a lot of what happens to her isn't her fault. Yes. She's actually trying within the framework of the story and the time, etc. And what she's been... I mean, she's very beautiful. She's obviously not unintelligent. Um, but she gets, you know, inverted commas in Victorian terms, ruined. Yeah. And then her she finally meets someone that she is she does fall for mm-hmm. this is having had an illegitimate child which dies at birth um and on their wedding night she confesses that you know she's not a virgin because this thing happened to her and his reaction is to go ah how could you you filthy thing and pack up and disappear off to america and leave her alone yeah and no resources um it doesn't go well for her, but yeah, it's very much sad girl in the traditional sense of this is an afflicted woman and everything's happening to her, except at the very end where she makes the choice to murder somebody. Yeah. It's <laughs> and, and again, it is interesting to see. It's almost like the sad girl, sad girl sort of fiction we've watched as it sort of evolved um, with the times and it's yeah. like, a, we're going to make her sad, but we're going to give her some agency now. <laughs> She's she's kind of <laughs> responsible for her sadness a tiny bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think in some ways I can cope. I mean, The Woman in White is another good example. Yeah. Um, even though it's not focused on the whole sad girl thing, but that it gives you the three, three very archetypal versions of women in situations where, you know, things are happening to them and what you can do with the mental resources that are given to you yeah Uh, i just wish wilkie collins wasn't so timorous about how he presents his female characters (laughs) (laughs) with the exception of marion halcom um yeah so i don't know i guess my my real issue is i can kind of cope with the sort of afflicted woman trope as it was presented in Victorian literature because it was serving the purpose of saying, you know what, some of this isn't fair. We're, we're victim-blaming, essentially. Yeah. I don't like the newer trend of embrace your depression. Mental mental illness is something aspirational. You don't need to get help. You just need to really be in the moment with it. And it's like, I don't think anyone should be telling anyone exactly what they should be doing because every single case is different. But I think potentially sending the message out there that it's a beautiful thing to be celebrated and, you know, just watching somebody fall apart is okay. It is not necessarily a good one. Yeah. It's it's not good to also, you know, basically tell people that to be acknowledged, to be respected, to be, you know, worthy of attention and to be considered beautiful, intelligent, profound one has to uh, essentially wallow or suffer um, with what they, you know, with what they're going through, um, and that self-help, the path of, you know, of recovery and things like that, um, would lo- you would lose something profound yeah. and important in that, and that in some ways it would be selfish. It's like, oh, you would be happy, but then you wouldn't be able to, etc. Um, I think one of the things that... It's a comedian, and I've forgotten what her name is, uh, but she kind of made this point, which was that someone told her that she shouldn't be on medication 
for her depression because um you know without you know art comes from pain they were saying and they you know yeah. and the example they gave was well look at look at Vincent van Gogh if he had been you know in a healthy place we wouldn't have the sunflowers and stuff like that and um she kind of pointed out the fact that actually the sunflowers and a lot of you know his his most famous work and stuff like that is probably actually also been um affected by the medication that he was taking at the time yeah um and also the big point which was why do we prioritize art and this kind of stuff over someone's life and happiness and joy um yeah why have we put why have we applied the profound on suffering instead of the profound on joyfulness and exuberance and life because the fact of the matter is is that there are lots of amazing pieces of artwork which were created with exuberance and joy and life um as well as other sort of things so why yeah. do we only concentrate on the sad ones yeah definitely so final thoughts on this i mean i've enjoyed quite a few sad girl books and you know i've got several more on my list that i've got every intention of reading because i'm interested in the stories that they're they're purporting to tell yeah um so i'm not a, i'm not a hypocrite and i'm not going to say the genre has no merit i don't believe that at all yeah um i think a lot of them are thought provoking and artistic novels yeah um it's just the way that the subgenre of sad girl fiction or messy woman fiction has been turned into an aesthetic that bothers me yes um i agree um and the celebration of misery you know it's obviously not a new thing um you know we we acknowledge that jane austen commented on it and recommended a balanced diet which included more practical reading materials um in several of her novels so yeah i mean think of sense and sensibility with marion yeah marianne sort of like throwing herself into really feeling it and making herself more miserable than she needed to be and i think in persuasion there's um Anne Elliot is talking to that friend of oh, of Captain Wentworth's who's, you know, he's lost his fiance and he's just throwing himself into the poetry of the time. And Jane Austen's kind of making the point of, yes, it, it's good poetry, but maybe you should read a bit of, you know, prose as well and balance it all out. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is, again, it's worth thinking about in the modern day. I think it's, I, I think it, can serve a vital function particularly with regards to catharsis and we are allowed to enjoy what we enjoy um and yeah. as jules said you know at different points in our life you know even you were reading a lot of it as well um yeah. but the problem is that we need to remember the difference between fiction and reality um and that fiction can be used it can be enjoyed you can connect with fiction you can connect with characters that's great but you've also got to make sure that you do not apply you do not learn virtue from a book if that makes sense not in that way and yeah. you know these are not guides to living sad girl fiction are not supposed to be guides to living they are stories 
enjoy them as stories and then close the book and make sure you maintain that balance. I think it's the healthiest way of looking towards yeah. it all. I mean, basic, basically, you are beautiful and valuable because you're you, not because you're willing to put your pain on display to entertain other people. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I think ultimately the answer is um, read it, enjoy it, balance it out. Uh, try not yeah. to fall in love with misery. Yeah. Because <laughs> misery loves company. Um... <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I it, we are at the end of our episode. Uh, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation. Um, and Jules, I believe that you've got a, a unique one for us today. <laughs> Yeah, this is. I've read so much. I mean, I say horror, but when I say horror, I don't. I'm not really into like spatterpunk, so don't assume that what I'm reading is like really particularly gory or anything like that, because mm. I just find that quite boring. Um, but I've read loads of horror that I've really enjoyed this year, and one of them is kind of this campy horror story whereby it's a little bit silly called Patricia Wants to Cuddle, cuddle and it's by Samantha Allen. Um, now, everyone's heard of like Love Island, right? Yeah. I've never really watched it. No, but neither have I. But I, I think I we all know those, about it. Yeah, we all know about it. The premise of the book is that it's this sort of analogue for Love Island is in like its ninth season or something and they're desperately trying to get through and get them, you know, directors and what have you are trying to get through and, and get money for a tenth season and they're cutting the budget. So they're down to the final three contestants and they're, they're bachelor type of person and they go to this remote island <laughs> instead of somewhere, you know, somewhere it's beautiful, but this remote island that isn't really a touristy destination at all. Right, good start. No way that and could one, go wrong. <laughs> I mean, one of the contestants who's got through to the final is literally there because she's like, well, I may as well have the free holiday because, you know, I'm not going to get all the way through. And she's also kind of like, I think I might be bisexual and I'm really not into this bachelor guy. But he's kind of like, yeah, I can't be seen to uh, discount the only black woman who is part of the you know lineup of contestants. So, yeah. tell you what I'll do: I'm gonna, you know, get you through to the fi- to the final because that looks good for me. But I don't want you to be disappointed when I don't choose you. And she's sort of sucking it back and sort of like, well, I don't want you to choose me because I don't like you. You're a real prick. Yeah. But okay, fine. I'll just take the free holiday kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> And then they realise there's something not right about this island. They're essentially glamping. Right. And it turns out that there's something else living on the island as well. Always a good start. <laughs> and it doesn't like disturbance. It doesn't like noise. And I just love the way that this book um, sort of explores queerness with the creature feature, if you like. Because... I want you to think, if Love Island met King Kong and had a very unlikely cryptid baby, that's basically this book. <laughs> okay, and, you know, it, that's it, sort of, it, that sounds amazing. <laughs> it, it does have its sort of, it has a couple of sort of gross moments, but overall it's kind of like, okay, so we've got someone here who's in, in this show, they don't really want... <laughs> And there is a lonely cryptid out there. 
<laughs> that it really doesn't like the interruption. And this island might be where people go when they don't fit in anywhere else. Anyway, I'll leave it there, but it's a really funny book. Okay, um, definitely have to check that out. What's it called again? Patricia Wants to Cuddle. Patricia Wants to Cuddle, okay. It's quite a short book as well. Oh, it's not super long. <laughs> <laughs> definitely worth checking out. Um well, thanks very much for listening, guys. Um, again, do get in touch with us if you have any thoughts on this. Do you think we've missed something? Do you want us to cover something? Um, do you have any books or recommendations that you think that we would really enjoy? Do get in touch with us. But for the time being, we'll say, once again, thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. 